The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. The word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this morning. The word of our God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Please keep your place here as 
This portion of God's word will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. The Lord has a plan, and God's plan is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. And man's rebellion against God cannot stop that plan from being brought to pass. Think back to the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, he gave them this command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Do you understand what God was telling human beings to do? He was calling us to spread paradise, to spread the garden so it covered the earth. With human beings created in God's image, perfectly reflecting God's character and will into the world. It was God's purpose that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. The first Adam failed, but mankind's failure cannot stop God, and so God sent his own son into this world in order to bring this mission, this plan, to pass. So when the Lord called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. See, the Lord did not merely promise to Abraham a tiny strip of land in the Middle East. The Lord promised to Abraham that through his seed, that is through Christ, he would be heir of the entire world. Or think of the promises of the coming Messiah that we read in the Psalms or in the prophetic literature. There we are repeatedly told that the Messiah will rule over everything. That that the Gentile nations will be incorporated into his kingdom. Indeed, the Messiah who will come will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. God's plan has always been that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. So when the Lord sent his son into the world around 2,000 years ago, almighty God moved heaven and earth so that Gentiles from a distant land would seek, would find, and would worship Jesus Christ. These magi were a sign of, and they were a down payment on God's plan, that he would fill eternity with a vast multitude that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would worship Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who were these wise men? Uh, For 165 years, we've been singing, we three kings of Orient are. And therefore, every Bible teacher and every Bible preacher feels compelled to make the point that we don't know how many there were. There were three gifts But wouldn't it be kind of funny if in God's providence it turns out there were three of them? We just don't know. What we do know is they weren't kings. They were magi. 
which the ESV helpfully translates as wise men. These would have been very learned, well-educated counselors to the Persian ruler. Right? They were important people. They were people that had a task of storing up knowledge and education. And we're not actually told why these wise men were interested in the birth of a Jewish king, but there's a pretty obvious possibility that stands right before us. When Daniel and his friends were in Babylon, Daniel was appointed to be the captain of the Magi, and his friends were important leaders. That is, is when you hear that term, you have to remember that from a Persian standpoint, Daniel was a Magi, a wise man who counseled the king. And since these Magi would have been responsible for storing up knowledge and seeking out knowledge, it makes good sense that they would know about one of the most famous Magi who's ever lived, that they would intensely study the book of Daniel, and particularly as they set out to Jerusalem. They would have poured over every verse of it seeking for clues about this coming king. And let's remember that Daniel specifically talks about the coming of the great king who will be given universal dominion and who will be worshipped. Furthermore, Daniel dates the coming of this king to the days of the Roman Empire. Right? That he has that succession of empires there. So they had every reason to be going, the time is drawing near. Now how exactly the Lord made clear to them that this was the time. Not three years from now, not ten years from now, we don't know. And we really don't know very much about this star. There's been a lot of speculation about how this could have been a natural phenomenon of some sort. And of course the Lord uses natural phenomenon, there's no problem with that. However, no one's really been able to explain uh, how a natural phenomenon to get them from Persia to Jerusalem, that's easy, but then to Bethlehem. That, that small detail isn't going to really fit in with a comet or some kind of supernova or something. All we can say is the star was from God. God did it. God moved heaven and earth to bring these Gentiles some six or 700 miles from Persia so that they would worship Jesus Christ. The Magi were not on a diplomatic mission. They were on a far more important journey than that. Why had the Magi traveled to Israel? Beloved, please pay attention. This is central to understanding this passage. Why had the Magi traveled to Israel? Please note that the wise men, what the wise men came to do they came to worship the child. Now, we're going to say more about that a little later in the sermon, but for now, please mark this in your minds. The Lord is not working to gather a vast multitude of people who will consult with Jesus Christ. The Lord is not moving heaven and earth to gather a vast multitude of people who will admire Jesus Christ. The Lord is moving heaven and earth to gather a vast multitude of people who will bow the knee and worship Jesus Christ. That is the Lord's plan. Now, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's about the best news you could ever hear, the best news you could ever tell. God himself came to dwell with us, to walk in our shoes to forgive our sins so we could be with him forever. It's astonishingly good news, but only if you bow the knee. 
See, that is not good news if you want to be one of those people who say, I will not have this man to rule over us. It is not good news for Satan. It is not good news for those who will not trust and follow him. And exhibit A is King Herod himself. Look at verse 3 with me. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. What we're used to hearing this is this great announcement of good news. But for Herod, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I want to suggest that Herod and Jerusalem, that is official Jerusalem, they weren't troubled by exactly the same thing. King Herod was troubled that there was this child being born who's being hailed by a king by foreign dignitaries, and it's a threat to his throne. Jerusalem is troubled about what Herod might do about it. So you have to realize Herod was a monster, particularly at this point in his life. He was a moral monster. Nothing would get in his way of holding on to power. In fact, Matthew will later tell us, we'll talk about this next week, that Herod would kill all the children in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger in an effort to eliminate this baby Jesus. But beloved, that's not an aberration. That is simply Herod being Herod. As Dan Doriani points out, Herod had been king about 30 years by this time. He was old and died not long after our Lord's birth. Now, Herod was an immensely gifted man, skilled in hand-to-hand combat, in rhetoric, and in politics. He excelled in famine relief and in building projects. We actually think about the extraordinary beauty of the Jerusalem temple that was so embellished by Herod during his reign. He was a gifted man, But he would do anything late in life out of cruelty and out of his paranoia to retain power. Perpetually fearing plots against his own life, he put his own wife, Mary Amne, and three of his sons to death. He was not a nice man. In fact, Augustine once quipped that he'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. There's a play on words there in the Greek. But think about that. He'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son because Herod would not slaughter a pig out of fear of alienating the Jews, but he had no such scruples about killing his very own children. And as Josephus tells us, Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death, and you could imagine people not wanting to mourn the death of someone who would become such a paranoid monster, Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that when he was dying, he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come to Jericho, where his palace was, and he gave an order that they should be killed at the time of his own death so that there would be weeping and mourning when he died. And it turns out that the rulers after him wisely didn't carry that out. Uh, but that was his plan. Let's just say, giving the type of paranoid tyrant that he was, if Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was going to be troubled as well. Now, it's easy for us, it's right for us to criticize Herod for his cruelty and for refusing to bow his knee to Jesus Christ. But actually, the question we ought to ask this morning is not about Herod, it's about us. 
Are there aspects of my life in your life where I don't have a name? In my checkbook, in my, in my schedule of my time, and how I relate to people, right? Whose will am I seeking in my life? Turns out, actually, I think the checkbook is the easiest one, right? You know, you write a check, and, you know, you tithe, or you give 15%, or you give 20%, whatever you're, you're led to do, right? That's actually fairly straightforward. I think, actually, the hardest one is with our own children. Uh, one of the paradoxes of worldwide missions is that while America still to this day is the largest sender of missionaries around the world, worldwide missions, I believe, is significantly hindered by parents who say, missions is important, but not for my son or my daughter to go to some strange and difficult place. Uh, I want my daughter to be an engineer. I want my son to be a nurse in a comfortable suburb somewhere in the United States. Now, let me say, there is nothing wrong with being an engineer or a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or whatever else in a comfortable suburb in the United States of America. Right? Nothing's wrong with that. But the question is, whose will are you seeking? When you look at your children, are you saying, I want them to be comfortable or I want God to be glorified by the impact that they have in this world? Whose will are we longing to see accomplished Beloved, let me put this here rather pointedly. Do you sometimes imagine that Jesus Christ came into this world to make living the American dream a little easier and a little bit more comfortable? You know, that idea can be caught up with this phrase that was really popular about 30, 35 years ago. When I was in California, people routinely had this slap as a bumper sticker on their car. Jesus is my co-pilot. But beloved, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you need to switch seats. Right? See, Jesus doesn't come simply to take your side. Jesus comes to take over. He is the Lord. Jesus comes so that we will bow our knee, worship him, and follow him. The Lord is not working to gather a vast multitude of people who will consult with Jesus. He is not gathering a vast multitude of people who will simply admire Jesus. The Lord of heaven and earth is moving heaven and earth to gather a vast multitude of people who will seek, who will find, and who will worship Jesus Christ. Part of that worship is joyfully going wherever the Lord calls us to go and joyfully doing whatever the Lord calls us to do. As we sang just last week, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. But instead of receiving the king, Herod only wanted one thing from Jesus. Herod wanted Jesus dead. Yet as appalling as Herod's response to the news of Jesus is, and it is disturbing, the response of the religious leaders might be even worse. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Verses 4 through 6. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that is Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now the chief priests and the scribes were at opposite ends of the theological spectrum. Uh, the scribes were the theological conservatives. They were trying to preserve Jewish tradition. They cared about the details of the law. Uh, the chief priests were primarily Sadducees. And you can think loosely, it doesn't quite work, but you can think of them as being the uh, minimalistic sort of Jews. Uh, maybe a little bit on the, well, certainly on the liberal side of things in terms of not wanting to have Jesus be in charge. Um, and yet, both the chief priests and the scribes fully knew the answer to Herod's question. Right? should say about the Sadducees, they were um, the affluent ruling class. And they were quite comfortable accommodating themselves to Rome. In fact, the chief priests routinely bought their office from their Roman overlords. It was a very, very seedy sort of business. And then they tried to make their money back by selling things in the temple courts. You'll recall, of course, Jesus would drive out the money changers and the merchants from the courts saying, don't make my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, into an emporium. And yet from all ends of the political spectrum and the theological spectrum, everybody knew the answer to this question. I mean, where's the Messiah going to be born? You might as well ask a minister in the OPC, what is the chief end of man? It just rolls right off their lips in Bethlehem. And, of course, they even know the scripture from Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And I almost picture them expecting Herod to kind of pat them on the head a bit for giving him a good answer. They were troubled what Herod was going to do. They must have been happy that Herod just asked them such an easy question a question for which they knew the answer. Things were going far better than they had feared. Except do you notice what the scribes, chief priests, the religious leaders do next? What do the religious leaders do after they give this answer? They do absolutely nothing. They are utterly apathetic about the things of God. These magi have traveled six, seven hundred miles to come and worship the newborn king. Bethlehem's only like five, six miles from where they were in Jerusalem. Uh, that's a 90-minute walk. Not one of them goes with the magi to see whether or not it was true, whether or not the Messiah had been born. Beloved, they were utterly apathetic about the things of God. Let that be a warning to us. As J.C. Ryle warns us, it is possible to have scripture in our heads, right, they did, it is possible to have scripture in our heads with no love for God in our hearts. Here is the response that may be more appalling than anger. The religious and civic leaders of Israel reveal that they are utterly apathetic about the things of God. 
Now, these verses remind us that it's not always those who have the greatest religious privileges who are called into God's kingdom. We might have thought that the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the first to run to Bethlehem on the slightest rumor that the Savior was to be born, but it was not so. A few, unknown to the Jews, Gentiles. And it turns out from Luke, a bunch of shepherds. Right? So Gentiles and shepherds are the first to seek, find, and worship Jesus Christ. The question is, what about you? Let me point this in particular toward you young people. It is an extraordinary privilege for you to have believing parents. To to know the things of God from your youth. It's an extraordinary privilege. But it's familiarity caused you to lose a sense of the wonder that God himself came into this world to live the life that you and I should have lived, to die the death that you and I should have died so we could be brought into his family forever? Beloved young people, please don't let familiarity let you grow cold to the wonder of this. When God calls you, you need to step out in faith and act on it. As you listen to this portion of God's word, may you recapture the wonder of who Jesus is and therefore worship him with everything that you are and with everything that you have. The wise men traveled several hundred miles to worship Jesus. The religious leaders wouldn't even take a short walk to a nearby town. Herod, on the other hand, was not apathetic. He was keenly interested in this child. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, Herod might have temporarily fooled these wise men, right? They they probably took Herod at face value. He actually meant what he was saying. But they weren't fooling God, and in the long run, that's all that matters. The wise men, by contrast, contrast, continue diligently upon their journey. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. After listening to the king... They went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, the the Magi must have been excited that uh, one of Israel's own prophets, Micah, had actually told them specifically the town where they were to be, where they would find the child. But they must have been a bit mystified that nobody from Jerusalem went with them that short journey. I mean, didn't these Jewish people believe their own prophets? The short journey from Bethlehem was actually direct and easy to follow. Um, God did not need to give them a star again in order to guide them there. But God graciously does as a clear marker to them that it was God who was guiding them on their journey. The star appeared, the star went before them, the star rested over the place where the child was. 
was all very plain, and yet it was all entirely miraculous as well. Unlike any other star that had ever existed. And the Magi kept following that star until they reached their destination. I think that's actually a wonderful illustration for us of right spiritual discipline. They had traveled this great journey and they would not stop until they reached the object of their desires, until they had found him. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You've heard that too many times. You've got to catch the wonder of this. These magi are doing an extraordinary thing. These are important people, and they are falling on their faces before a child, an infant probably, and worshiping him. Now, many, many commentators are reluctant to take this at face value. They want to turn it into something that is more like exalted honor that falls short of worship. After all, these are foreigners to Israel and strangers to the promise. Surely they don't understand what they're doing, do they? But I think there's good reason to be far less skeptical. For one thing, if they were familiar with the book of Daniel, which I think is almost absolutely certain, they would have been pondering Daniel for a very long journey. And they would have considered the things that Daniel says about this child that this child was extraordinary, not just the next king of Israel. I mean, stop and think for a moment about the exalted things that Daniel says about the coming son of man. According to Daniel, the Messiah was not simply going to be a great king. He was going to establish a universal kingdom that would never be destroyed. Or think simply of that image that he gives us in chapter 7, where Daniel presents Almighty God as the Ancient of Days, and then he gives us a vision of the Son of Man, the Messiah, coming to God and receiving him, receiving from him all authority in heaven and on earth. That's an image you should stick in your head. This is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I don't think it's much of a leap to think that people who believe that's true would think this person is worthy of their worship. And of course, since the Lord was guiding them on this great journey, we also don't know how much the Lord would have opened up their hearts and given them a genuine understanding of the child that they were seeking. So the Magi fall on their faces before the child and they worship him. Now, naturally enough, the wise men brought gifts. That's what you do when you want to honor a king, let alone worship one. They brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At least from the time of Irenaeus in the 2nd century and Origen again in the 3rd century, 
Christians have seen in these three gifts symbolic meaning. There's no way for us to get beyond that to know what the Magi themselves were thinking. But in the ancient Near East, that these things did carry symbolic meaning, and that meaning would have been fairly obvious. Gold is for royalty. Frankincense, or actually I think that, that term obscures it for us. Incense, you think about incense. Frankincense, incense would have symbolized prayer to God. And myrrh was used for burial. Right? So we have royalty, prayer to God, and something to prepare for burial. Origen puts it like this. The gold was for a king. The incense was unto God as to one who receives prayer. And the myrrh was for a burial signifying the importance of this king's death. Well, gold is natural enough as a gift to bring to a king. But I think we also should see a remarkable providence in this. You know, shortly after this, Joseph is going to have to gather the child and his family, and they're going to have to flee to Egypt so that Herod won't kill their son. Have you ever stopped to think about how Joseph, who's a builder or a carpenter, can travel to another country, set up his life there, and keep his family there for a few years until Herod dies? Well, God brought him gold. These magi brought this thing of great value that in small quantities is quite portable, to provide for their family's needs. It, it was a sign that Jesus is the king, but it also met a very practical need in their lives. Frankincense, or as I say, we might simply say incense, I think that keeps us from getting obscured, was used in the temple to symbolize prayers to God. And so you might naturally think of incense here as symbolizing Jesus as your great high priest who intercedes for you, who prays for you before the Father. That's fine. But I think we ought to see it on the other end, actually, the way Origen does. Not simply as Jesus praying for us, but Jesus as the object of our prayers. After all, the Magi do not come to Bethlehem to ask this child to intercede for them. They come to Bethlehem to worship him. And finally, there's the myrrh. Myrrh was an expensive perfume that was commonly used in preparing bodies for burial. Here's the tricky thing. Don't let the familiarity of this, because you all know that myrrh is brought by these wise men, don't let the familiarity of it take away the shock of this as a gift. Imagine someone coming to you a few months, a year, year and a half after you give birth to a child, and they say, we have a gift, a beautiful small coffin that points to your child dying. That's what the myrrh does. It points to Jesus' death. It was a valuable gift. But it points to the mission of this king. As Simeon would tell Mary in the temple, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Jesus was born as king of the Jews. Jesus was born as the king of kings. But Jesus is born as a very unusual king, a king who was born to die. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We must imagine that the Magi brought the very best of each, and they also brought themselves. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, and they also brought themselves. 
What was the greatest gift in the story? We all know the answer. It wasn't what they brought. And it wasn't even themselves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Beloved, Jesus is the greatest gift in this story. He is the greatest gift of all. And so it is the Magi rather than Jesus who rejoice with exceedingly great joy. For they had found and they had received the greatest gift of all time. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Uh, This simple conclusion is actually, I think, part of the good news. You know, we can all too easily fall into the mistake, the trap of thinking the Herods, the Caesars, the Bidens and the Putins in the world are the ones who are really driving everything. And that can make God's kingdom, his plan, seem like it's so fragile. But this passage reminds us that all the details are in the hands of Almighty God. Through the quiet note of simply sending the Magi home by a different path than they had planned, frustrating Herod's plans, the Lord reminds us that he's in charge of every single thing that ever takes place. Almighty God has a plan to establish his son on the throne of the universe and to put all things under his feet so that through Christ, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord even as the waters cover the sea. Beloved, Almighty God is carrying out his plan. Therefore, the Herods and Caesars of this world are utterly powerless to stop it. That is astonishingly good news. But it is only good news for those from every tribe, tongue, and nation who bow the knee and worship him. The Magi are a down payment on this promise. This morning's passage reminds us the Lord is not working to gather a vast multitude of people who will consult with Jesus for good advice. But he is not gathering a vast multitude of people who will simply admire him. Rather, the Lord is moving heaven and earth so that people from all over the world will seek, will find, and will worship Jesus Christ. By God's grace, Some 2,000 years ago, Almighty God moved heaven and earth so that wise men from the east would seek, find, and worship Jesus Christ. By God's grace, wise men and women still do. Amen.